Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode six of Cosmos Crusaders. Uh, it's pretty crazy. We are now already on our sixth episode. We're going on, I think, 19 weeks since we started. So that's pretty cool. Um, this episode, we have Dr. Ronald Gamble, who is a research scientist at NASA Goddard and at UMD College Park. And this week's episode was really cool because he was our first like post-postdoc scientist. So though he's not exactly late career, he's still early career um, because he just got his position at NASA Carter this year. It was a bit of a different type of interview because we had a lot of things to cover because he's had a longer career than like other people that we've done in our podcast so far, which was pretty cool. And it ended up being pretty long. It's almost two hours. So Look at the timestamps if you guys can watch the whole thing. There are a lot of really interesting parts. Um, but before we start this week's episode, um, I guess me and Sammy just wanted to sort of talk to talk a little bit about what we've learned from doing the podcast so far and some things that have sort of stood out to us from all the different guests we've had. Um, so we started this um, with the idea of sort of just bringing more awareness highlighting the stories of people of color, minorities, and underrepresented individuals in the field, um, because I felt like a lot of the time, our voices aren't heard as much as the majority. And from what we've, the guests we've had so far, which have all been pretty diverse, which I'm happy about, um, and we're going to try to continue to keep doing that. Um, everyone has a very different story, whether it has to do with how they started in the field and sort of the things that they've gone through in the field while they've been there. And I think that it's really special how we've been able to sort of hear everyone's individual stories and kind of just portray, have them portray them in the way that sort of they're, they seem like sort of just how they, how they want to and give them a space to sort of just express themselves which has been really cool. And I think that everyone that we've had so far has been really honest about their experiences, which is really nice. And um, I think that I've learned a lot about how different people experience the field um, and a different sort of challenges that people face that I might not necessarily have to have to think of on a day-to-day -day basis, which I thought was, which I think has been really good for me because it can help me be a better ally to different communities. Um, so that's one of like the big things that I've taken away so far from what we've been doing. Um, but I am interested to hear what Simi has taken away as someone who's not in the field, but will be going into a professional field very soon. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. And now, as I begin law school, what in two weeks, um. I think that I gained a lot of insight from everyone that we've interviewed so far and just like the obstacles that I might face in the future um, just because of my identity. But I think the main takeaway that I have was just like as long as I can remain resilient and focused on my goals and believe in myself that I'll be able to accomplish anything. I think Dr. Gamble is a great example of that. Um, he really just fought for what he wanted and was able to create his own path to get where he wanted to be. Um, I think that's really like admirable for me and something I'm going to try to do as I begin my graduate career. Um, I'm really looking forward to all the rest of the stories that we're going to hear and for the future of this podcast because we are planning to 
expanding eventually to start looking at all the different fields, starting with law. So we just want to thank you for supporting us and for continuing to support us as we grow and have more and more episodes and move on to different areas of professional work. And yeah, I mean, this one's really great. We hope you guys enjoy this interview as much as we did. And thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, your support is very appreciated. And yeah, so I guess we'll just get right into Dr. Gamble's interview. Um, it's a good one. So see you guys. Welcome back to another episode. And we are extremely excited to have Dr. Ronald Gamble as our guest. So Dr. Gamble is a visiting assistant research scientist and cosmic origins research scientist at NASA Goddard. He got his undergraduate degree in physics, his master's degree in experimental condensed matter physics, and his PhD in theoretical astrophysics from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. And his dissertation was titled On Gravitational Radiation, Nonlinear Wave Theory in a Viscoelastic Kerr Lambda Spacetime. He completed the first physics-related dissertation at NCAT pertaining to the emission and propagation of nonlinear tensor mode gravitational waves from colliding black holes, which is pretty cool. And he is also the vice president of Black and Astro. So welcome to the show, Dr. Gamble. Thanks Thank for, you for having being me. here. Yeah, of Thank course. You. Of course, we're very excited. Yeah, we really are. Thank you so much. And that's quite a track record you have going on over there. Um, just so, just to start off with, could you describe a little bit about your current research? Um, yeah. We know, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. This is, I'm, I am the guest. <laughs> um, just broadly, go can I understand it as you're studying relativistic jets that come from black holes, like theoretically, um, but we'd love to hear more about the details. Yeah, so um, kind of in a nutshell, if I give you like the, an elevator speech, right? So for the general public, what do I do? Well, I study, I use a combination of general relativity. So some heavy mathematics you might see behind me. Um, and I use uh, observational data to kind of infer or to decipher some of the physics that's going on um, in the jet, relative physics jets. So we're talking high energy regime, right? So we're talking maybe MEV on up. Uh, so X-ray through gamma, cosmic ray, and maybe some other uh, ultra-high ultra high energy rays as well. Um, but I'm looking at, if you can imagine, very, very close to the horizon of a black hole and the interface of the jet in the horizon. So what happens, according to physics, what happens in that regime in the high energy realm of astrophysics? Um, and, I'm, and I'm more focused on, you know, how, how do we quantify angular momentum exchange, right? Between this very, very dense compact object, the black hole, and something that's very, very luminous, like a jet. Um, and so we have to use techniques like X-ray polymetry, radio polymetry. So we're looking at polarization states um, within the jet to kind of quantify, to tell us, or to tell me or anybody else studying this area that you're on the right track, right? To, to Develop your theory. It's got a, the theory has to mature, and then you have to test it. Right, the numbers have to match what we see. Uh, so that's the the top level <laughs> uh, explanation of what I do, and it's and it's very 
uh, mathematically heavy uh, for for most astronomers, I, I should say. Um, but you know, it's it, I think it's very insightful to where the field is going for studying jets and jet emission theory. There's a lot of unknowns we don't know about, and so that that captured my curiosity. Okay, and I told myself, well, pick one unanswered question, not ten. Um, and just focus on that. And then, you know, once you get a focus, then your, your focus shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And then you have now this one piece of information that turns into like a 15 page paper that you publish. And then you do it again and you vary some results and you keep doing it and keep doing it. And that's the science. And then you come up with the new stuff. Um, and then you end up on interviews and podcasts and stuff. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds really interesting. I also studied jets, uh, so I'm very interested in your research. I study them from an observational perspective mostly, though I do want to get more into theory as my time in grad school goes on. Um, so I was specifically wondering, so I mm -hmm. study relativistic jets from core collapse supernovae, so sort of trying to understand why some type 1c broadline supernovae can release these relativistic jets while others don't. Um, as long GRBs. So I was wondering if the same physical mechanisms that you study for jets from supermassive black holes can extend to relativistic jets that are released through core collapse supernovae as long GRBs. So it could. So the if when if you are a theorist, you have to make sure one problem with developing new theories is you have to make sure that it applies to many, many different scenarios. So not just one specific thing. But you have to make sure that it's generalized, sort of applied to other things as well. So in my work, I'm, I have to assume that the, the black hole, for example, supermassive black holes that I study, they are compact objects. So you can, in theory, replace that with a pulsar. You can replace it with a neutron star. Anything that has that is a source of strong gravity right, has some of the same basic mechanisms as a black hole. Now, of course, the supermassive black hole is a billion times larger. We know that. But so for core collapse supernovae, the jet, jets look very, very similar. And so there are some studies that you know, kind of look at, well, are there, is there a rotational mechanism involved for this, for this collapse? And are there different types of core collapse uh, mechanisms as well. Are we supposed to see the same type of emission in core collapse supernovae as we see in gamma ray bursts or gamma ray repeaters or radio jets or X-ray dominated jets and things of that nature? So we have to kind of apply it in a more general standpoint. We test it in one specific system, right? We don't have the time or the computers to do a lot of tests. That's, I mean, that's a dream, right? <laughs> Run it on the computer, test it for GRBs, AGN, pulsars, that'd be amazing. But the mathematics can apply to many different types of systems. So that would be very interesting to see that for core collapse supernovae, because there's a lot of unknowns we don't, we don't know about. Um, you know, and you can have, man, there are many other quantum mechanical implications for that as well. And so that becomes the weird interface to some of this research that's going on. So it's really cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, it really sounds like it. But for me, like as someone who's not a scientist, I'm trying to get a better base level understanding of what you guys are going talking about. But um, 
I'm still kind of confused about what the polarization of light like even means. I know that there's gravity stuff going on, but could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so I would say you can you can kind of think of it as um, if you think of it as kind of like a kind of kind of think of it as like a spinning top, right? So you have a spinning top, okay. And I know this is a very basic analogy, but for a spinning top, a spinning top can spin either count clockwise or counterclockwise, right? And so if we're thinking about left and right polarizations of light, circular polarization, that's what we're talking about. What are where we're talking about the handedness of the rotation of our electric fields as it propagates towards our eyes or our detectors. And so there are other combinations of polarizations. We have a prime example of you having polarization in your everyday life are sunglasses. So sunglasses polarize your, your light and you see just a, a specific configuration of that light and it hits your eye. And then now you can see the road in front of you and you can look good doing it at the same time, right? So thank you Ray-Bans for giving us <laughs> polarized lenses, but that's, that's the same science. So it's the same science that I use, the same fundamental physics that Goku might use in super uh, Nova collapse. It's the same science that other people might use. It's the same science that NASA uses when they study polarizations. And so that is, that's what I'm referring to in terms of the theory has to apply to many different things because we know all of these things happen and we know that it's the same science that occurs for all these different types of phenomena. And so, yeah, if you if you go back and it's the spinning top, you spin one way, cool. Left polarization, you spin another way, right-handed polarization. Um, and then if you apply that to kind of some other uh, things as well, well, that's how we get some colors of light as also from different mechanisms due to polarization states. Um, and so the list goes on and on from there, from, your everyday applications of polarization. Uh, it's in your computer right now as well. And so you can think of switching, you know, the key on and off ones and zeros as polarization. Um, it's, it's literally that simple. The mathematics is the same. Um, so that's your everyday analogy to, to what I'm doing. Just take what I just described and apply it to supermassive black holes that are a million billion light years away. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. That was a really good, really good analogy. <laughs> uh, yeah, polarization always confused me in undergrad. And I feel like even that analogy, hearing it now, like makes it even more clearer to me. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, optics was not the best course, but we have to take it, right? <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, so I, I actually have a lot more questions I want to ask you about research, but I'm sure that we could talk about that some other time. So we want to move on to your background now. So just starting off, it's kind of going way back. Um, how did you know you wanted to study physics and astro growing up? Um, I didn't actually. So yeah, surprisingly, I, I didn't. I actually growing up, um, I think I, my mom always tells this, this story. Four years old, I asked my mom, does the sun have fire? And she's like, I don't know how to answer that. But I assume so, because we get light from it. Um, and you can't look directly in the sun, so it must be hot. Um, and so that's the answer I got from her. 
um, from her recollection. And so it, I knew places like NASA, there were observatories existed. You know, I knew kind of knew how telescopes worked as a kid, um, but I didn't know that you could make a career out of and go to school for studying mathematical theories, period. Um, and so growing up with it, I didn't have a lot of examples of that. We saw, of course, a lot of engineers, business people, people playing sports, the athletes, musicians, artists. There's a lot of artists in my family, but I'm the only physicist. So I am like one of the only pure scientists in my family. And so my mom, she's got a degree in biology from Fordham. Shout out to Fordham. Uh, but even still, you know, that's not astrophysics. And so I didn't know, I knew of, the closest thing that I knew of was an aerospace engineer. I knew they had to be, they had to deal with rockets. They had to deal with space travel of some kind. Um, but then I took uh, an astronomy elective in high school and it kind of blew my mind. Um, and my professor there, his name was Vonnie Hicks. Shout out to Mr. Hicks. If, if he's still at Enloe High School in Raleigh, North Carolina, he's gonna get a shout out because that was like my first instance of physics and astronomy. So I had him for physics and astronomy. And that was actually the first time I realized, oh, I can do a lot of complicated things with this. These, these things are coming very easy to me. Um, and so I took to it. And then I realized, oh, there's a bunch of math. Yikes. <laughs> I was good at math from a very early age, but looking at, I wanted to know the science and not, know, and not the math. I wanted to throw the math away and just do the science. But then my teacher at the time, he told me, no, you have to pair the two together. And so that's when I decided, oh, maybe I can major in this stuff. And so I majored in physics. I found out that you could be a physics major. This was maybe, I was like 16 years old. You could major in physics and just do physics. Um, and then the rest is history from there. And clearly I, that's what I do, <laughs> the, the physics and the math. <laughs> that's, that's a really interesting story. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess most of the people that we've talked to so far have always been like, I wanted to study ever since like I was a kid. So it's really, it's really cool that you were able to find that passion in high school and sort of just go from there. That's awesome. Um, so you talked a little bit about how there weren't many like astrophysicists, well, there weren't any astrophysicists in your family and sort of like there was a lack of representation in the field in general, because you didn't even really know that you could study physics until high school. Yeah. So I guess once you got into the field, how did the lack of representation sort of affect your view in astrophysics as sort of like the beginning stages of your career, like in undergrad and like how those like close to you viewed the field, for example, like your family and like things like things of that nature? Yeah, so um, it was in the beginning, it was relatively hard. Well, it was very hard because not only, you know, the fact that there's maybe 1% of astrophysicists are either Black or Latino. And so that by itself was kind of astonishing. And I wasn't exposed to that very early because um, I assumed, well, if I'm studying this, this at this age, well, then maybe there must be a lot more people studying this. Um, and so early on, this is maybe freshman or sophomore year in undergrad, I come back home and I'm you know, visiting my, the church that I grew up in, I'm visiting some family friends, I'm visiting some people in the community. I go back to an old, uh, the, um, 
club that I used to go to as a teenager. And people are asking me, what am I doing? I'm like, oh, I'm majoring in physics. And I'm like, oh, yay, physics. And like, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> Study black holes. What do you mean? These are, this is awesome stuff. Like, no, what are you going to do when you come back home? Like, what kind of job are you going to have? Are you going to, how, how can that contribute to the community? I'm like, but it's not. And so it, it was a struggle trying to communicate the people that I grew up around, and these are more mostly uh, the older generation that's that weren't in those fields, right? Um, trying to explain to them that this is a job that I was very passionate about, and I had to be, I had to learn how to be selfish in what I wanted to pursue, and not have it being influenced by someone else wanting me to come back home, right? To then either be an engineer, be a civil engineer, be a banker, or you know, be an athlete and then give a million dollars back to my community or something like that. Um, and so I had to be very comfortable in saying, well, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm very passionate about. Um, and then once I went out into the world and realized, ooh, there's not a lot of us, not a lot of people that look like me doing what I'm doing, I then took it upon myself and said, okay, well, if there's not a lot of people doing this, then somebody has to do it. And so I'm not one to quit at something that I've already started. I kind of like, I'm very competitive. <laughs> uh, and so once I start on something, I want to finish it all the way through and I want to be one of the best ones to do it. So I was taught very, very early on by my mother that if you are going to do something, do it well and do it completely. Um, and so that's what I decided to do in undergrad. And I knew it would be a very, very hard path because I was doing it at an HBCU. So a historically black uh, institution, it's a very, very, I should say, almost impossible task to do. Um, but I, I then met with one of my long, lifelong mentors, Dr. Bebe Kavetti. He's at North Carolina a right now, still teaching after 27 years. Um, and so from then on, uh, I met him in 2008. From then on, it was, we're shooting for the moon and beyond. We just kept going. Um, and so that's another influential person in my life for my career development that was like, okay, yeah, you can do this. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to people that are saying that you can't do this. What are you going to get a job in? I'm like, well, I'm going to get a PhD. Um, and I knew that as soon as I got my freshman year undergrad, they asked me, well, why did you want to be a physics major? So I can get a PhD in physics, but I know I have to do this first in order to get the PhD so that I can go home and people can call me doctor and then I can tease. <laughs> um, but really, I knew if you had a PhD, then you were really the boss of your research. And that's what I was after being in control of the research that I did in my career. And so that's, that's how I really got focused in physics and undergrad. That's such an amazing story, like really admirable that you stuck to what you wanted from the beginning. And I'm glad you at least had some like people in your corner because it must have been hard. Um, but you mentioned that going to an HBCU is almost seen as an impossible task. Um, I mean, I, I was under the impression that it was pretty uncommon in your field, but what do you think 
your positive experiences were there like how is the overall vibe and do you think that a lot of people like would you recommend it to people and how would you like encourage people to change their views on HBCUs because it I, worked out for you yeah and it's it was I, I I can't say that it was um well actually I would be remiss if I said that it was completely bad it was it was an amazing experience um so don't get me wrong it was a fantastic experience that if I actually had the chance to do it over again I would probably choose the same path because of the the people that I met along the way and the that just this it's the sense of family that you have in your small department my department had maybe 60 students in it so that was both undergrad and graduate so it was a very small department we had maybe uh eight or nine teaching faculty um, and then one other lab laboratory staff. Um, and so that was it. And so we kind of, kind of, we would all come together as kind of like a small knit, nitty gritty family. And just being on a, the HBCU campus, it then gives you another uh, kind of source of pride that you can rely on, right? So even though I was maybe, three, there were three of us that graduated uh, in 2012. When we got up and we finished our degrees, there was three of us in that graduating class from physics. Yeah, and so, but we did other things on campus. And so the other, the rest of the community on campus would look at us and say, how do you major in physics? So like, well, it comes natural to us because everybody else in the STEM majors had to come through our department to take physics. And so we were kind of looked at as, okay, well, can you tutor me? Maybe, are you gonna pay for my lunch? Sure. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was a sense of pride. And then uh, being on an HBCU campus, there's homecoming every fall. And so that was a time that just kind of, and I can say this now, cause I'm far removed from undergrad, put your books away, put the homework away, put the exams away, midterms, what are those? and just relax, you have fun with your friends, um, you meet new alumni that graduated decades before you, and you share experiences, and then you come back once you graduate, and you, you keep doing that, and you'll have lifelong friends. I have lifelong friends from going there, um, and the professors remember me, the, my mentor is still there, he remember, I talk to him all the time, um, and so it's, it's truly like a sense of community, at an HBCU. Um, and I'm encouraging more and more students to go to HBCUs, black, white, indigenous, Latino, Asian, it doesn't matter. Support these schools because they have, they can provide another source of culture to the science, right? And so that's what I gained when I left the school. I gained a sense of culture that I can then contribute to the science. And then it makes it all fun. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an amazing experience that if I could do it again, I probably would. Now I would do some things a little differently. <laughs> Maybe I would study more, but, <laughs> but it's, it's an awesome feeling. And then once you meet other alumni, they're everywhere. It's like, oh, you went to AMT. Yeah, I did. Oh, hey, you're right. And now you have another friend. And so it's, and my wife, she hates it when I see somebody and like, Oh, you, Aggie? Yes. And then we go crazy and we're talking for 20 minutes as if we weren't strangers 30 seconds ago. Um, 
<laughs> and so it's it's awesome. It's it's truly awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome experience. And talking about bringing culture to science, I think is is very important. I think a lot of people in the field don't really view that as something that sort of has a place, which I thoroughly disagree with because science is done by people. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, so next, you decided to stay at ANT for graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, so we were wondering why you decided to stay there for graduate school as well. And how did you end up doing a master's in experimental condensed matter physics and then transition to doing your PhD in theoretical astrophysics? Because those seem like two very different fields, like subfields in physics. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. And I, and I occasionally will get this question asked, why, why did you why did you stay? It's like, well, when I, um, this had to been, this was the beginning of my uh, senior year undergrad, part one. So I took, I took an extra fifth year because I knew going into that senior year, that fourth year, I was not ready. And so I knew, okay, well, if I take my time in undergrad, okay, grad school will be there. MIT, Princeton, UMD, Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, whatever. They're not going anywhere. They're going to be there. They were there for 200 years. They're going to be here for another 200 years. It's fine. Um, and physics will always be here. As long as the universe is here, physics is here too. So I'm like, okay, so why am I rushing? Why the rush? So I took an extra year and I'm so glad I did that because it, it gave me time to kind of slow down in my studies um, and to really dive deeper into what I wanted to do in grad school. And so I figured that out very, very early on. And I started studying um, general relativity in undergrad. Um, and this is, I didn't have a class for general relativity. This is something I, I picked up a book, Meisner, Thorne and Wheeler, and I looked at it and I read through it. And I'm like, what the F, what is going on here? Um, and then I said, all right, well, if I'm gonna understand this, then I need to learn more math. And so that is when I made the decision, okay, well, I need to know more and more math, right? And so I, I did apply to other schools um, at, when I finished undergrad, before I went into my master's. I didn't get in um, simply because I felt like I could have done better on the applications. And so that's, a, that's another thing that I kind of drive home to some students that I mentor, spend a lot of time on those applications because um, they definitely matter. Um, and so, I stayed and I actually, we, me and my advisor, Dr. Kabetti, we wrote a grant uh, to NSF for funding my master's, which would eventually parlay me into a PhD research in astrophysics. Um, and it was, it was not funded. And so we wrote another one. And then that one was kind of pending. And then NSF said, well, UNC Chapel Hill is like down the road from you. You guys should go work with them because ANT wasn't known for astronomy, but UNC Chapel Hill was. And so I said, well, but they're an hour away. I'm not going to drive every day to UNC Chapel Hill. I can't do that. Um, and so it was unfunded. And so my advisor, the most, one of the most resourceful persons I've ever met, he put together a project um, that he would do with another person on campus in mechanical engineering. Uh, and that's how I got connected and interwoven into experimental condensed matter. So we studied high temperature superconductivity 
um, because he knew I wanted to stay in grad school. He knew I needed to do something and not stop. Like he, he, he knew this was an investment in my potential, which I'm forever grateful for because it was, it was awesome. Um, and so in order for me to keep going and not stop, uh, I did the master's, I stayed at a and um, but I also told him, well, if I'm staying, then I wanna teach. And so that's when I first started teaching at a and um, and I liked it at first. I was like, okay, this is kind of fun, teaching, teaching people physics and they're confused at first, but then once they figured it out, see like your face right now, it's like, okay, yes, you, you get it, yes. Um, and then you wanna keep teaching, you wanna tell them more um, until you find out they're not a physics major and so they didn't take calculus three and differential equations <laughs> yet. <laughs> and so you, you learn to communicate the science better teaching it. And so that's what I picked up on. So I had kind of like a dual threat for my masters, stay in school, do something, right? Um, which I actually enjoyed superconductivity. I, I played around in the lab one day and I made a, so we were using uh, quartz, we were making high temperature superconductors. So yttrium, barium, copper oxide on quartz uh, thin films. And so we would use, create those by pulse laser deposition. I use a Krypton neon, uh, a Krypton laser, uh, about maybe like 550 to 600 uh, kilojoules of power. And so we create a laser, create the plasma, deposit the superconducting powder on there. And you have this thin film, which it almost looks like the, the surface of your phone, right? So it's kind of, it looks like that reflective surface, but it's a superconductor. And so I played it around in the lab one day and I made a clear superconductor. Normally they're opaque, they're black, but I made a clear one. And my advice was like, how did you, how did you do this? I'm like, well, you're not gonna like it, but I took some stuff out of your cabinet and kind of threw them into the, the vacuum chamber and I shot a laser at it to see if it'll work. And he's like, but did it? It's like, it kind of did. It's like, can you do it again? Like maybe, but let me write the equations down first before I lose this idea. And so it, that then sparked what I did in grad school. And so, I, I did not initially want to stay for my PhD. Uh, I actually got, I got waitlisted at UMD College Park, where I, I am now faculty at, <laughs> um, so ironically. Um, and I got waitlisted for uh, Princeton Astrophysics. I got into the grad school, but I did not have funding. So of course, if you don't have funding for grad school, you don't go. So I stayed at a and and the, uh, story of what I told you very, very early on in undergrad about staying at an HBCU then resonated back. And then I, I really made a much stronger commitment to saying, all right, well, if someone's going to get a PhD in astrophysics here, then I'm going to be the first one to do it. Um, and so years and years go by, I finished, I had an awesome time. I'm sure we're about to jump into that work, but but that's the reason why I stayed um, at a and And I'm I'm kind of glad I did it because I can show students coming up now that, hey, this, this path is possible. You can go from zero to Mount Olympus or NASA through this path. So there's a path that's very doable. It might be difficult, but it's very possible and it's very real. And so would I want to stay in grad school again? Maybe, maybe. 
maybe. <laughs> um, but everything that I learned, I'm eternally grateful for because it truly made the scientist that's talking to you today. Um, so it gave me a sense of resilience that I can then teach my students how, how to use. Yeah, that's super inspiring. And in your position now, it just proves that like hard work and dedication really does pay off no matter how many steps you have to take. Um, so it's pretty obvious that you always encourage people to take whatever route fits them, even though it might be uncommon. But how mm -hmm. do you think that like other scientists and other people in the field can help reduce the stigma around the HBCU route? Yeah, you have to, um, I would say you, people have to, to look at, again, it's a culture thing, right? So people have to look at HBCU students and just HBCUs in general. And, and this applies to other MSIs, HSIs, indigenous colleges as well, right? Um, of looking at the, not just the science that is coming out, right? Not, not the fact that some of these schools are, well, most of these schools are not large R1 institutions, right? So they're not Stanford doing a bunch of research or, or if you will, um, but they are smaller schools, but they have the people that drive the science. So you have to look at some of these schools as, well, this is your source of part of the culture that goes into the science. Um, the science did not start in a lab. It started with people looking up. And so, at some of these schools, you go back, you're transported back to the people looking up instead of people just being buried in a lab and trying to come up with new intuitive ideas and, and not getting anywhere. Well, you gotta look up. We're astronomers, we're astrophysicists, we're scientists, we looked up initially. And so part of that is, you know, not just identifying, well, yes, that's the constellation, uh, Ursa major, Ursa minor, whatever. Yeah, that's where we started, right? But our telescopes, we're devising methods, we're devising scientific methods that do the exact same thing that the people are doing. We're looking up, we're pointing our telescopes up. And so if you want the, the creative, if you want the intuitive ideas, if you want the fresh ideas, right, that, were, that are kind of, uh, that have been marinating, they've been fermenting, right, in this, this sea of possibility, right? <laughs> well, you have to look at these HBCUs because that's where it's at, right? So part of the struggle, um, it kind of helps, kind of season, adds flavor to these new and fresh ideas because we have to think about some of these things very, very creatively with some of the limited resources that we have. And so if you get someone like that, coming out of some of these schools and they're doing the same caliber research as someone at Stanford, shouldn't they be able to do it cheaper? In terms of, if I'm thinking of a grant, well, that person can save me money. If I'm, if I'm a PI, well, they know how to do it more efficiently, really. And so there's a balance. And so it, it also, this is also happening at the large R1s as well. So it's not something that's exclusive to HBCUs, but that is a source, right? So it, it's a cultural source that we can tap into. And there's fantastic students at these schools. All they need is just the opportunity. That's a, an access to resources. That's truly all they need. They have the brilliance, the intelligence, the, 
the intuition, they have it all. They just need exposure, that's it. Just to tell them, hey, your school may not have a PhD in astrophysics, but you can get into another school that has it and do fantastic things. Um, so that's, I think that's really the, where the attention needs to be. Um, and, you know, to make sure that we're not squandering the students that are coming toward there, right? We're investing in these schools to, so that we can build up many, many different types of scientists, right? Because that's, that's how we got to where we are. That's, that's how we're able to do general relativity. Einstein reached out to many other people to put this together. He didn't do it by himself. And so I think that's, that's what we really need to do. Yeah, that was that was really powerful. And I think that's a really good message to spread to our community. I think most more people with your mindset would make it a much, much better place. Um, so now finishing up with uh, your time uh, doing your PhD, I guess if you could just describe sort of the main finding or a couple of your main findings <laughs> of, of your thesis, um, which has a very impressive title. Uh, so I guess just describing a little bit about sort of what your thesis was about and like what you ended up finding out um very interested yeah so this is a this is another interesting topic um and it's it's one that i am i'm still currently developing so this isn't this is far from finished but um back in grad school i in my studies of general relativity um i i came to ask my my graduate advisor at the time, that was Dr. Kenneth Flerchik. Um, and so he, I asked him, well, what, what, if, what, if what if the metric of space-time changed in time? What if that was time-dependent? And he said, that doesn't make sense. No, you're reading it wrong. Go back, redo the math. And I'm like, okay, well, but I read it. <laughs> but I have these questions, <laughs> just humor me. He's like, okay, well, well, that would mean your ruler, if you will, changes in shape as time changes. So imagine you trying to measure something with a ruler, but the ruler changes. Oh, well, that's not really gonna work. And so then I asked him like, okay, well, what if, you know, we have the rubber sheet analogy for space-time, right? Put a mass there, it stretches, space-time curvature, real simple. That's general relativity in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and so I asked him, all right, well, what if instead of the rubber sheet, right, what if I had a, a ball of putty that was space-time? I have a ball of putty that was space-time. And I said, all right, well, imagine this putty as behaving like a fluid. The putty can stretch, you can twist it around, it can flow a little bit if you heat it up. Um, so it's like a fluid, right? So you're thinking Navier-Stokes, fluid mechanics, yay, mathematics. Um, and so I asked him again, all right, well, what if that was time dependent? Um, and he said, well, again, it's not gonna work. He was a very old school physicist. <laughs> He's an old school theorist. He's from Jersey, went to Catholic school. So he's one of them like, no, do it my way. Um, and so I then said, all right, well, what if the metric of space-time, right? So we have general relativity. What if the metric of space-time didn't necessarily change, but we added a change to it, right? So instead of you actually stretching the ruler, what if you just added another ruler? And then that extended your length. 
if you will, right? So now what if I took the same putty analogy and I stretched it out and I shrunk it back and I kept doing that, right? And he said, well, that's gravitational waves essentially. I'm like, yeah, that. What if we did that? He's like, did you read about gravitational waves? I'm like, no, what's that? He's like, so he hands me this thick and it's somewhere in my office, this book that's like this thick, strictly for gravitational waves. And it's like a black hole Bible. And he said, all right, read this, come back. It's 600 pages. What do you mean? <laughs> read this. So I read, <laughs> I did what he told me to. I tried to read it. Um, and I, by then I knew enough mathematics to kind of, I, I meandered around it. Um, and I come back to him and say, like, all right, I know what I want to do for my dissertation work. He's like, all right, well, what is it? It's like, I want to know if we can describe gravitational waves as elastic. And he said, huh, that was the first time I stumped him in a question. And I knew, yes, I'm onto something. And then he said, oh, that's been done before. I'm like, crap. Um, and then I, I came, I come back to him again and I said, well, no, 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 not that way. Cause I, I actually looked that up, not that way. Go back to the, the ball, the putty ball. But what if gravitational waves acted like that? And he said, well, you might have something new then. I'm like, okay. And so I, I go off, I hide for like a whole semester and I come back with this proposal for my dissertation work. Um, this is right before my, my, quali my qualifier exams. Um, and so I then presented the idea of, and this is the general synopsis of my dissertation, the general idea of what if I take gravitational waves from black hole binaries, okay, so that's known. Um, and what if I said, well, what if we describe them using some type of elastic interpretation of space-time, right? And so I then, we then go off, we develop this extension to general relativity, if you will, that kind of takes that general idea. And then one of the results was, well, it worked. <laughs> I, at the time, this was when LIGO like first turned on. So this is just like JWST is everywhere now, LIGO was everywhere back in like 2015. So it's LIGO everything during this time. And all of this new information on gravitational wave detections became available. And we said, let's test this thing out. Um, and so we tested it on some LIGO data and we actually recovered one of the linear, linearized solutions using this theory. And so that's one of the results of my dissertation. And then I told him, okay, well, but what about the energy? What about the other side of the equation, right? He said, okay, well, well what do you mean by that? What about the energy? It's like, well, there's the second law of thermo. It's like, don't do that. I'm like, but Hawking did. He's like, no, don't do that. I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> and he's like, well, that involves quantum field theory. We don't know how to incorporate quantum field theory in general relativity yet. Still don't know how to do that. And so I said, okay, well, I went back into the lab, crunch, 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 math, 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 right? Code, code, code. And I came up with the other side, the other half of my dissertation which involved describing the, the genesis of these elastic oscillations based off of the black hole mechanics that Hawking, Bardeen, and Carter put together and extending those to include 
this elastic interpretation. So I had two extensions, both on the geometric side from Einstein and general relativity, and then on the thermodynamic side from Hawking, Barding, and Carter, that theory. Um, and so I combined the two together. And one of the principal results of the, the, the work was calculating, coming up with a, a, a small scale numerical model of the spin deformation of curved black holes. Um, and I reconstructed the binary pair for, gosh, what is the, it's D, GW150917, I think is the gravitational wave detection. Um, and so I used that data. I reconstructed the space-time geometries for those, both those separate black holes. And then I modeled their um, deformation post-merger. So, and you can see how the mass would increase, right? But the spin dropped a little bit. And so I was able to calculate that out to maybe like four or five decimal places. So it was actually fairly accurate um, to reconstruct the new geometry, the horizons and the black holes and all that um, numerically. So we used a small scale uh, model of numerical relativity to do that. Um, and we generated a 3D model of this um, for the spin decay of a black hole and it matched with the LIGO data. And so that's what I did in grad school. Um, it's 193 pages of like mathematics and code. And I wrote the whole thing in LaTeX. Um, and so it's, that's, that's what a, a principal result of um, from grad school. And I'm still working on that theory. It's kind of, it's on that board in my home office. Um, and it's continually to evolve. So you should see more results maybe within the next year or so after publication. Yeah, so long story less long, that's what I did in grad school. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty big time. Uh... Yeah, I'm definitely going to try to check out that thesis when I have a chance. That sounds really interesting. I'd love to, I'd love to read about more of the details. Um, so now getting into your postdoc years. So you stayed at A&T for your postdoc, and then you went on to do another postdoc at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and National Strategic Research Institute. So could you sort of describe how you got these positions and what your experiences were like during those years? I remember you mentioned during your AAS talk that you can't talk much about what you did during the defense threat a year. So it's okay if you can't talk too much about that, but just sort of like generally, how did you get those positions and like, what did you sort of do that, do during them? Yeah, so this is another like interesting caveat to my, my journey. So this was, this, this kind of blows the, the masters in condensed matter theory and experimentation kind of out the water because this first postdoc wasn't in a physics department. It was actually in bioengineering and biomedical engineering. So I, um, this was a recommendation from my graduate advisor. Um, and he thought, okay, well, I didn't get uh, some, I, I didn't get to go to some other postdocs that I had applied to because at the time, those postdocs in theory, you had to be like extremely competitive for. And so this was another instance of, oh, I didn't know the field was like this. And so it's, it's you kind of, at a small school, you're kind of 
sheltered, if you will, from some of these things. And then you go out in the world and it's like, wow, man, maybe I should have published more in grad school. Because <laughs> these guys are coming out with like 16 publications going into the postdocs. And I'm like, whoa. Um, <clears throat> and so I stayed there. He knew I had a passion for teaching, right? Um, and he knew that I would benefit from teaching more. Um, and so in grad school, we had, we had both developed uh, uh, the curriculum for two other physics courses. Um, and so he said, all right, well, this is a postdoc that's kind of doing the same thing, but you have more freedom to do it. And so I, I applied to the postdoc um, and the, the department chair in biomedical engineering asked me, well, you're not an engineer. It's like, yeah, but you're looking for someone to help develop physics labs and physics courses and the mathematics courses that you need. It's like, and I can do that because I'm a theoretical physicist. And he said, okay, well, give me a, a five minute lecture on the divergence theorem from calculus three. I'm like, cool. And I wrote out the proof for the divergence theorem in five minutes on the board in his office. This is in an interview for the job. Um, and he was like, but I explained it to him just as if someone who did, who never took physics, who had never taken mathematics. And he, by, at the end of that, he understood. He's like, okay, so we have to then, we have to write out these seven courses that we wanted. He starts telling me all this stuff about the, what he's doing in, as part of this, this grant that he wrote for NSF. And I'm like, okay, did I get the job? Did I say, like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. When can you start? I'm like, now <laughs> I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and, and so that's, it's kind of how I got the job or the position, that first postdoc. And it was centered around, um, so it was part of the, um, the NSF Project Red. So this is revitalizing uh, engineering design courses. <clears throat> um, and so I was a, a postdoctoral fellow in that program um, on that grant. And my job was to design, develop, uh, implement, and teach a set of five new classes that were both uh, a part of math numerical calculus based. So I, so I, um, I developed two uh, calculus laboratories, if you will, so this is, and these are all done on the computer. So this is computational calculus. So this is for calculus two and calculus three. Um, and I'm teaching this to biomedical engineers who barely take physics two. Um, and so they, some stop at, uh, they stop at calculus three. And so, but the lab is taught to freshmen. Um, yeah, so I have to teach numerical calculus to freshmen and sophomores. <laughs> and so I developed this course that's both equal parts rigor and you know, some of the application to their major in biomedical engineering. Um, and it took off, it was great. Um, the other courses that I designed were, were um, a biophysics lab and lectures, a pair of courses. It was lab and lecture, um, and then also a a uh, a bio and a bioenergy interactions course and lab, which kind of was centered around some of the biotransport mechanisms. This is things like 
uh, electrolysis, electrophoresis, um, catalytic uh, reactions, reaction rates, uh, bioluminescence. Um, there are some uh, cellular responses to radiation sources and uh, ionic transports. We're looking at diffusion. By the end of this course, they would have learned Stokes theorem, the curl, vector calculus, diffusion, um, and they would have learned how to do it all in MATLAB on the computer to write code for solving these problems. And so those were four of the five classes that I had designed. The fifth one was a, an upper level course. And I don't know why they put me in this, but it was, it was uh, anatomy and physiology. So it was engineering analysis of physiology. And at first I'm like, gosh, the last time I took biology was in high school and I'm a postdoc. I'm like, okay, how do I? So I go, I find their textbook that they had before and I read overnight, I just read through the textbook. I'm like, okay, now let's do this. We'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. Okay, cool. So we started with reaction rate equations. Okay, well, what happens when you put concentration of potassium on one side of some cell wall or some barrier, some membrane, and you put sodium or, or calcium or chlorine or something else, some other ion, some other salt on the other side. Well, what happens? Well, they want to mix together. Okay, positive, negative charges. Cool, physics one exists, right? Um, and so that is, at that first semester was rough. <laughs> it was very rough. Um, and my, my old advisor at the time said, yeah, I heard from your department chair that you're kind of teaching this course a little but I'm like, how did you hear about this? Well, he asked me if you want, if, you know, if he picked the right guy, I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> um, and so I stepped it up a little bit. You know, I read some more um, and realized, okay, well, I'm gonna take a more physical approach to this, add more math and add more math and add more math. Um, and then the course became harder for the student. But once, if you got through that course, you could do any, you, you were ready for anything in grad school for biomedical engineering, because you've seen it all through that course. And I built a reputation for having hard courses. <laughs> um, and some students avoided me uh, at the beginning. And then, and then they realized you have to take Dr. Gamble's course. Do I have to? Yes, if you want to graduate, you have to go through him. <laughs> and so that's, that was the position there. And, and I did that for about a year and a half. So at the end of that, I ended that in 2019. So by 2019, I was, I had taught at A&T for seven years. Um, and by the end of that, I had designed seven courses. I taught undergrad, graduate, um, physics, math, biomedical engineering, um, and one computer science course. And I did a lot at A&T. And then I had to leave and go to the DOD. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I did in, in the first postdoc that I had there. It's a lot of stuff. That does sound like a lot of stuff, but you made it work, even though it was kind of hard for the students. Um, but it seems like the postdocs that you were doing weren't really in line with your end goal. Um, how, how did you sort of like keep your mentality strong and keep pushing throughout this like kind of like state of limbo yeah i um i would keep i would continually do my 
uh, continue my the work that I did in grad school on the side. So when you know if I had downtime either on the weekends or sometimes in the evening, and at the now I'm this is 2018, so now I'm married, and my wife's like, "No, come to bed. What are you doing?" I'm like, but I'm working. This is gonna this is gonna work out one day. Trust me. And this is 2018. I mean, she's like, is it though? Like, yes. <laughs> um, clearly it worked out. I'm at NASA now, so something worked. <laughs> um, but that's what I did on the side, because I knew, okay, well, this postdoc's temporary. Okay, cool. I can get another postdoc. Um, the second postdoc I had, I, I didn't search for. They found me. Yeah, so, and I, I had no idea they existed. Before I, I looked them up, I had no idea they existed. They found me, they reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, you really fit what we're looking for. And I'm like, do I? Okay, sure, I'll, sure. I'm currently on the market, I'll take your job since it pays like 30% more than the other postdoc I was looking at. <laughs> and so it's, again, this is another instance of um, me working on the side, but I did have the, the state of mind to ask them in an interview for the second postdoc in the DOD, if I wanted to publish work of mine that was unrelated to my current job task, could I have funding to do that? And they said, yes, we encourage that. I'm like, okay, great. When do I start? Because I knew, all right, that's a place I needed to be at to continue working, to continue working. Um, and so I, I put out two other papers during that time span. Um, one of them was submitted to Physical Review D. Physical Review D said no, and I was heartbroken. <laughs> I was heartbroken. Um, but then it taught me a lesson of, okay, well, one no, there's gonna be a yes somewhere else. Keep working, keep working. So I kept developing, kept working. I kept working and I kept working um, until I had my interview with NASA and I told them, well, if you wanna know what I did, I have these slides ready. I had 30 slides prepared before my interview. Cause I'm like, all right, I'm not gonna get another chance to talk to NASA maybe. And so I had these slides prepared and, and they asked me, who did you work with? After, once you finished grad school, who did you work with? Cause you went to DOD and you did this biomedical engineering post. Who did you work with? So I, I was by myself. And they were like, wow, they were speechless. Um, and so it's, I, I say all that to, to kind of compound the idea again of having that resilience. If you wanna do something, you have to be okay with not being paid for it in the beginning. It's okay if you're not paid for it, if you're not compensated for it, if they don't accept your paper, it's okay, keep doing it. Because at some point, all this hard work is gonna pay off. And now it just, it, to me, it seems like, okay, well, I went from here and I kind of like skipped the line up to the top. And now I'm just here. Now, NASA's like, Ron, just keep doing what you're doing. Publish, 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 do whatever you want sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, okay, this is what I wanted all along. Um, and so it, it was a hard lesson to learn of resilience. Resilience is hard to learn. But once you get it, it's like, okay, I'm, un, I'm unstoppable. Um, until you get 
you know, you publish, you try to publish again and they say no or something, or <laughs> you go for funding and they say no, but that's part of the job, right? Um, but that's, that is kind of, that's what I did to continue my interest, to continue building that resume in astrophysics. Cause I knew at some point I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my break. I'm gonna get into the field. Um, and that's what happened. Wow, a lot of just believing in yourself and kind of this one door closes, another one opens mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of thing. That seems like a theme for you, but that's really awesome. So now you're a visiting assistant research scientist and cosmic origin scientist at Goddard and, and also UMD. You mentioned a little bit about what you're doing there now, but like, how did you end up there? Did they also invite you for the interview? Did they reach out to you or? They, they did. So my job, um, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't widely advertised, I should say. Uh, so this is, you guys are, um, Goku, you'll meet this, this point in your career. You guys are still very early career, but once you finish grad school, you finish your postdoc, you'll, you'll go out and get some tenure track or some other position. And these are the jobs that are called direct hires. And so these are jobs that are, they are looking for people with very, very specific set of skills. Um, and it just so happened that my resume popped up. I sent out a cold email. I randomly emailed or responded to some uh, announcement of a position that would have been posted online and advertised during the summer. So this is summer uh, 2021, right? So this is 2021. Um, and I sent out an email, this is about March, and I didn't get anything back. And I'm like, all right, well, it's out there. Somebody has my resume. Maybe they'll contact me back. Two weeks later, the, <laughs> the deputy director of the Astrophysics Science Division reaches out and she says, hey, yeah, we read through your resume. We read through your research statement. That's some pretty interesting stuff. We wanna talk more. I'm like, oh, you do? Cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're NASA, why not? Um, <laughs> and so I, I talked to them. And so uh, I tell them about what I did, tell them about my journey, some of the same things that I'm, I've shared with you today. And they were like, okay, but you, most of this you've been, you've been navigating alone. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's been very solitary. Um, and they didn't look at that as a hindrance, but something that would aid in the position that they were trying to fill. Uh, because then that showed, like, that showed independence. So it showed drive, it showed independence, and it showed that I could manage a bunch of different things. And so that's part of how I got my job. Um, and of course, it was, there are many, many different rounds to an interview. And so after that first talk, I was like, okay, yeah, reach out if you are interested. And I'm like, you know, okay, well, I'm over here kind of thing. And it's maybe a few weeks go by and they ask um, for an interview with, again, it's her again, the deputy director, and then also um, other lab chiefs. So I met the gravitational astrophysics lab chief. Great guy, these are great people. Um, who was very interested in what I did. Um, and then I was presented kind of with a fork in the road of 
because I didn't have a, you know, a more traditional astrophysics postdoc position, um, I was offered, all right, well, do I, I'm thinking to myself, do I apply to the NPP again, you know, where I, I got to final rounds and then they said, well, you know, you didn't have enough publications, but you liked the proposal. And so then I was like, okay, do I do that again? Or do I take a chance and take this other route that was presented to me? Um, and this is how I got exposed to Crest. So this is the Center for, gosh, this is my employer. This is the Center for Research in research and exploration in space sciences and technology, Crest. <laughs> Yay. Um, so Lee Mundy and Lee Sheen at, at UMD, you should be proud. I, I remember the, the acronym for Crest. You're watching this. <laughs> um, but that's my exposure. And, and I kind of took that. And then the, the extra position that was kind of tacked onto this, they said, all right, well, if you're gonna go this route, then are you interested in doing diversity, equity, inclusion things? I'm like, yeah. I'm, well, is that part of the position? I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be, but if you do it, I think we can, we might be able to, you know, add some extra incentive on there, which, you know, for, for big boy and big girl jobs, that's negotiating salary, basically. <laughs> um, and so it's, I'm like, I'm not going to say no, you're NASA. <laughs> what? No, of course not. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, what would I be doing? And this would is this is outreach. This is recruitment. This this is both um, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility efforts, both interior to NASA, exterior to NASA, trying to be a face that NASA Goddard and, and the Astrophysics Science Division can um, kind of attach to some of their data efforts, right? Um, and then to have again, just like the culture, to bring in this sense of culture that they didn't have before. So they didn't have a, um, a, a um, somebody who was purely from the HBCU route before. So I was like the first one. Um, and so after I realized that, I'm like, wow, all right, I got my work. Like, I got a lot of work to do then. I can't be the only one here. <laughs> um, and so that is, that's part of how I got my job. Um, and then I realized that UMD has like 25 different faculty titles. <laughs> and I was presented with two and I'm like, okay, what's a visiting assistant research scientist? Um, and, he, and I'm talking uh, with the folks at UMD. He's like, well, essentially you're like visiting research faculty. I'm like, am I teaching? He's like, no, but you can, adjunct if you wanted to at some point later two years after you start <laughs> um and so i'm like okay cool i'll take it cool and so my position was a hybrid one so it was the first of its kind of doing dei outreach and recruitment and other internal and external efforts and a combination of independent research and this is research that, um, of course, you have to submit a, a research plan, right, when you initially start. But this was entirely whatever I wanted to do. 
if it was NASA related or NASA directed, I can do whatever it was. And so I'm like a kid in a candy shop, like, oh, can I do general relativity? She's like, and the deputy director is like, if you can tie it back to a mission architecture or something, go for it. And I'm like, cool. So I go out, I'm like, yeah, jets. Cause I wasn't able to do jets in grad school. And I'm like, yes, jets, jets, jets. And then she comes back, she's like, all right, which ones? I'm like, oh, what do you mean, which ones? There's one. It's like, no, there's many, many different types of jets. And so this was, this was now my opportunity to deep dive, go in the deep end of cutting edge astrophysics theory. And so that's what I did the, the first summer before I started. That's what I did. Um, and so I had an opportunity to learn a lot. I went to uh, the, the Fermi School uh, at, at Goddard. It was hosted between NASA Goddard and, and some other folks out at uh, Stanford. Uh, and so it was virtual because COVID was still real then. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> and so that's, that's, that was my first task was to put together a research plan to start my position. And so that's how I got my job. There's a lot of in-betweens in there that nobody wants to hear about because it's red tape and paperwork and HR this and HR that and stuff. But that's, that's how I got my position, sending, taking, taking a chance and sending out a cold email to this NASA administrator to then say, all right, yes, I don't have as many publications as some. I didn't have an astrophysics postdoc. I do have an astrophysics dissertation. I do have three degrees in physics. I have taught for seven years. I do have government experience in the DOD. We managed, I can't say that we managed very large projects <laughs> that involved some aspect of nuclear physics. And that's all I can say. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> um, and so if you're working in the government, then you know, oh, well, that's relevant experience. And so the teaching was relevant experience. Um, the independent research I did on the side was relevant experience because I'm literally doing the same thing now. I'm just getting paid for it, finally. <laughs> um, and so that's that's how my position uh, was, was given to me, or that's how I earned my position. And then Last March, I applied to be the, um, the Cosmic Origins scientist. As we know, Cosmic Origins is kind of agency-wide. It's Cosmic Origins, Physics of the Cosmos, and Exoplanet Explorers are the three pillars of NASA Science Mission Directorate, right? NASA SMD. And so I applied to be a support scientist there. And my position kind of got elevated slightly because I was I was doing the work, I was doing more than just, you know, this, this small communicative supportive role, just sending out the newsletters and writing emails and stuff like that. Oh no, we're, we're doing more than that. We're putting on programs, we're organizing workshops. Uh, we're putting on sessions like you saw at AAS. That's, that's part of my cosmic origins work. Um, and so it culminates into this now very dynamic position that I have, very unique position that I have at NASA, where I get to go out and not just communicate the science, not just recruit more people to do the science, but I get to do the science as well. So it's kind of like a trifecta. 
of all the things that I was doing before I got to NASA. And I'm now doing it in one position. I'm getting paid for it. Um, and then I, I get to invite other people to try to do the same thing with me. And so it's, I love it. It's an awesome position. It's a dream job. Um, if I had to do it all over again, just to get back to this position, I would probably do it because it's, it's an amazing opportunity. I love my work. Wow, that's, that's, really, that's really amazing. Uh, it's truly a testament of your resilience and your hard work. I'm, I'm really happy for you. That, yeah, you. That, was, that was an amazing story. Uh, yeah, that's the stuff they make movies out of. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> if somebody wants to make a movie, let me know. Uh, so I guess, wow, yeah, that was really cool. Uh, so now talking about sort of like your experiences that you've had at NASA so far. Um, what has your experience been like so far as an Afro-Latino who's graduated with degrees from HBCUs? Has there been any pushbacks and struggles that you face because you've come from these underrepresented backgrounds? Yeah, um, so this is, this is kind of the like the, the, the touchy, uh, you know, tearjerker part. So disclaimer, get your tissues out. <laughs> um, but I was, if, so again, this is, this is part of what I am referring to in terms of it being a, a near impossible task, right? So this is all throughout my journey from undergrad, even today, even five years post PhD now, um, you know, I'm still facing some adversity, right? So I'm still being looked at as kind of someone who's, some people might look at my position as a diversity hire, if you will. I've, I've heard that before. Um, in grad school, I remember presenting posters at the American Physical Society meetings and being told that, you know, because I got my, my degrees are coming from HBCUs and not large institutions that are well known for physics and astronomy and all that, that my degrees didn't count. And I have to go to another school and get them all over again if I wanted to get a job in the field or something like that. And so it's that constant barrage of things at every stage. It's always there, um, but it's always a reminder of to keep going, right? So I'm, and I know I'm not the only one who's doing this, who's going through this, who, who are hearing these words. Someone who has less tenacity than I did probably heard these words and they've left the field. Now, and we don't know who they are because they're, now they're out of the community. So we can't, we can't, we don't have a reach for them. We can't get them. But the ones that are still here, right? Um, I, I try to reach out to, I make myself available. Um, and even so I, when I first got hired, uh, at NASA and UMD through Crest, you know, even then I was still faced with some online attacks and, and things like that, saying that, you know, why would UMD hire this URM? And that is a literal quote, a literal quote there. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, yeah, there's a lot of, there are some people that don't like the fact that I am here, that, that I am manifest, that I exist, right? Um, and some feel threatened, but 
what can you do? Because I'm only going to get better. And I'm only going to invite more people to join me, whether they're black, purple, yellow, green, red, clear, whatever. Doesn't matter. If you're about the cause, you're about expanding this field, then yeah, I want to work with you. Um, and so that is, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Um, if, you, if you're coming through a similar background that I have, similar experiences, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow. And it's not just at HBCUs either. It's at PWIs, it's at large R1s. Um, and so it's everywhere, right? Um, but again, I, I'd rather it be me who, who has learned how to have the tough skin you know, I learned early on, my, I was a middle child. So my, my brothers and sisters used to beat up on me all the time. So I, I built, metaphorically, I built up a tough skin, right? I have a tough exterior. It takes a lot to put me down now. Um, and so I would rather take on that beating than to have one of my students take that on. And so that, that's part of my journey, part of the, uh, part of the, the, uh, hard parts right part of the part of the resilience again um but i'm sure i i haven't heard the last of it um and so it's this is part of the still continuing part of the drive so that we can we know those comments are going to be there we know those people exist we know they're going to be there we know we're going to hear that type of language but we have to learn how to ignore it and use it as motivation as okay well if you think I'm gonna fail, then watch me succeed because I've got no other option but to make it. Um, and we have a, <laughs> if my father sees this, he's, which he probably will, <laughs> we have a saying amongst each other. In the Gamble family, you have a saying of either we're gonna make it or we're gonna make it, period. And so it's, there's no other option. Either you're going to complete your task or you're going to complete it. There's no other option but to keep moving forward and to complete it, to make it. And so that's the mentality I try to keep. It's, it's hard to do that every day, day in and day out. It's very hard. And then especially to see other people that you care about in the field. You know, if, if I see one day, Goku, that, you, that some people are attacked, I'm, I'm gonna be upset. I'm, I'm gonna be furious and you know, I'm, I'm not gonna say that I'm going to fight somebody because that's not professional. <laughs> but I, you know, but, you know, there are, there are more professional ways to defend somebody to, to combat that type of language, that type of hatred or whatever. And so that's what I've learned how to do. And I, and I try to do that. We try to do that in Black and Astro. That is why Black and Astro exists so that we can reach out, it's not just for black and brown astronomers, it's for a lot of other people as well. So it's, it's for you all as well. It's, it's not just for us, but it's a space that is welcoming to show people, hey, block out all the noise. There are some great things happening. We can build some fantastic things here if we ignore these people over here talking smack and other things. Um, and so it's, you have to have a tough skin to be in this field. Um, but I think, you know, you, you can definitely do it. Um, so that's, that's my imparting 
wisdom from what I my experiences uh, getting to where I'm at now. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing all that, Dr. Gamble. I think that's really honest and it really can show the community how tough things are for people that a lot of people don't even realize because they don't have to go through those things. So I think bringing awareness to the fact that all these really horrible things happen to you and you're still going, it's testament to your hard work and your resilience, but also you shouldn't have to be so right. resilient. Like if that shouldn't be the way things are. That's why, that's why we started this podcast. So we can highlight stories like yours so we could show the state of the community and how we can make things better. Um, and you have a ton of allies at UMD, me included, and all my, my cohort and like a lot of a lot of people that are going to support you. And we are really, really excited that you're going to be part of our program for the upcoming years. And yeah, I can't wait to keep working with you as your years go on. Yeah. Um, so now getting into a little bit about your intersectional identity, because you are an mm -hmm. Afro-Latino. So has that impacted the focus that you've placed on sort of supporting underrepresented students to pursue academia? Have you ever felt that you had to prioritize a certain part of your identity over another, even though both your ethnicities are sort of minorities in the field? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I've been I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, have I ever had to prioritize one over the other? I don't think. Um, I think it's very rare, I should say. Um, there is a, I guess there is a, a an unspoken, um, so just like you have um, comments coming from other, you know, racist sources, if you will, right? That are usually the, the, the binary, black, white, or white, Asian, or, you know, what have you, um, some, and this exists in the Latino community, the Latinx community, there's colorism. And so even you have, you have inter-ethnic uh, divisions, if you will. And so I say that it's, it's a rare occurrence to prioritize one over the, over the other because even when I am in, when I'm sometimes in completely Latin X or Latin uh, spaces, I'm still looked at for some as black and not a fellow Latino. Um, because either um, I'm either the way I look or how I talk sometimes or, um, and I'm intermediate in my Spanish. I, I can't say that I'm fluent. I lost that as a child, but I am intermediate in my Spanish conversationally. So, but I looking, you know, if, if I go to Spain, no, I don't think I will be looked at as a Latino. I think they'll look at me as, oh, are you a black person from America? And I'll respond to them in Spanish and like, oh, and I get this surprise face like, oh yeah, I'm kind of one of you guys. Uh, especially now when I am in, now that is more, I would say Eurocentric spaces, right? Now, if I'm in, uh, if I'm in Latin Caribbean spaces, I'm instantaneously transported to like my people. 
I'm instantly recognized. Um, even for people I haven't even met yet, they're like, oh, are you, where are you from? It's like, where's your family from? They automatically assume, okay, there's something else about you that I can't quite place, but I know we have a commonality. And so those are the spaces that I, that again, it's another instance of not really prioritizing one of the other, they're kind of intermingled, right? So it's very rare that I prioritize one of the other. And um, I try not to do that because I know there are, I'm, I'm always gonna be in a space where there are both Latin and African-American or black, uh, either students or people who are just um, aware of my identity. So I try not to pick one over the other. My mother, she's black. My father's Panamanian. Um, and so I, choosing one or the other is like just having half of me. I need my full self. And so it's, it's a one complete uh, identity, not, not a, a compartmentalization of, of my identity. And so when I'm in spaces like that, I try to bring my full self. I make it known that you, you have an Afro-Latino here. Um, I am going to speak loudly. I might speak in Spanglish. At some point, if I am fired up, you're going to get some Spanish out of me. I might be playing some salsa music at some time if you step into my office. Um, and so it's a, again, it's that, it's that flavor. So it's the suborder, that's flavor, right? So that's my flavor. That's my uniqueness. And I live in that. I, I love it. Um, and so it's, it's very, very rare that I prioritize. Sometimes it becomes beneficial. And those are the instances where I might prioritize because then it requires me to communicate to whoever's in that space more effectively, to connect with them initially to say, hey, yeah, I understand you might be having a good time. Let me, let me put my pure, let me put my Latino hat on, just that one, right? Let me put that on first. Let me introduce myself to make you a little bit more comfortable and then say, oh, well, okay, so I'm Afro-Latino. I'm just like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of gather that, brown face. Um, and then it, it, just to help whoever I'm talking to, to build that connection. And then it's, oh, well, here's the rest of me, right? And so sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't, um, but you have to find kind of like a happy medium in between. And so there are times when, you know, if, if I'm with, if I'm with my father's side of the family, we're, we, we're going full, full on Panamanian. We are, <laughs> we are bringing that Panamanian passion. We're, we're going, you know, full of Spanglish and all that other stuff. It's a fun time, but we don't forget that we are also black. So we are also Afro-Latinos. Um, so it's, it's a rare occurrence that I am required to do that, but it only happens in a short amount of time, just to make someone else more invited, especially if I see, if, I, if they're the only uh, Latinx person in the room, I will do that um, to make them feel more comfortable so that they're not the only one, because I know what that feels like. Um, and then I'll say, okay, yeah, yeah. And then we'll, we'll be talking and then, if they're fluent, they'll continue to talk. 
And I'm and I then I have to step in and say, okay, well, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm not all the way fluent. So let's, <laughs> let's talk in English a little bit because we're in an English speaking space. Uh, but it's it's a very rare occasion. But I only do that to make someone else more comfortable, if that makes sense. No, yeah, um, that's great that you kind of use it to help other people and not just like for your own advantage, I guess. But it's also really nice that you're pretty in tune with with both sides of yourself and comfortable with no matter what space you're in, you can sort of still stay grounded in your identity. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to like NASA, how do you think one of the biggest institutions in the scientific field can help like take action, not just through you, but as an institution help take action to increase minority representation? Yeah, so it's one of the ways uh, that's happening right now is the, the, uh, the NASA SMD bridge program. So I'm on that, that uh, organizing committee. Um, and so that's, that is a big thing that NASA is doing right now. Um, and if the agency higher up or if NASA admins uh, is listening to this, then I encourage them to continue efforts like this one. Um, I encourage them to do more, not just the one thing, because it's not, it's not, they're not gonna be have, they're not gonna have, excuse me, a silver bullet, if you will. So you need many different things. You need many different methods um, to, to kind of combat, to kind of diversify the field. NASA has, near infinite number of resources they are like the they're like the astronomy gods <laughs> they they can do it all <laughs> um and so i implore nasa to continue doing that there are wonderful people that work for nasa that want to do this work we they just need the resources and the opportunity presented to them to do it um and so i so that again it's just opportunity and access um, and then the resources will come, but NASA has to make this uh, a, a priority, which I think they're on the right path to do. We've read the decadal survey, it's in there, chapter three, um, but you know, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Chapter three was just an introduction, uh, just an eye opener. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think, NASA can, I think NASA can do that if they stay on that right track. Yeah, that's that's good to hear some some optimism um, towards NASA these days um, in that space. I think they have been doing some good things for sure from the student perspective that we've been talking about. But as always, more can always be done and we have to keep pushing to make this field a better place. So, uh, yeah, so now getting into sort of your future. Um, mm -hmm. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Ultimately, what do you sort of hope to accomplish with your career now that you're sort of in this position at NASA that you've sort of been like working towards for for so long? Yeah, well, 10 years, I hope in 10 years that, you know, I, I might have less gray hair. I don't have any right now, but I hope <laughs> that I don't have any gray hair. Um, I'll be in my 40s by then. Um, but so I am, I'm 33 now. Uh, and so in 10 years, by 43, I hope that uh, I can take what I'm doing now for, for NASA 
and, and turn that into one of those, those much larger nationwide programs. Turning into, so right now I'm, I'm leading an initiative, an effort to, to go around to HBCU physics departments and to talk to them, engage in them, and to tell them about these opportunities that are happening at NASA, get them aware of how to make their applications and grants and things and fellowships more competitive when they're applying to NASA. There's NASA Roses, Inspires, all these opportunities are there. They just need to be aware that they are there and they are for them as well. And so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I would like that to be expanded much, much larger to include not just HBCs, but other MSIs, HSIs, community colleges. Um, and to then say that, you know, all are welcome at NASA, you can get here. Um, the other side to that in 10 years, I would, I would really like NASA to, to include more theory work. <laughs> so as one thing, as, as a theorist, right? Another side of my work is to communicate my science um, in a way that can be applied to NASA missions, right? So we know that NASA science is all about NASA missions. If it doesn't fit into a NASA mission, it's extra, right? It gets, you know, maybe we, we might be able to add that on, right? Um, but communicating that is a little, is difficult. And so I've met tons of students who have an interest in going into theory, who have an interest in saying, yeah, I wanna do what you're doing, but you know, it's hard to do that. It's like, I know, it's very hard to do this, but you, you can do it if you know how to survive while doing it, right? And so I would love to see um, in 10 years what I'm doing to not just be some of the diversity, equity, inclusion work, that's fantastic. I'm gonna to continue to do that as long as NASA's paying me. Um, <laughs> but I would also like to see more developments on the scientific side as well. The, the scientific communication, not just communicating images that we've taken, but how did you take this image, right? How were how you doing this theory work at NASA? I get that question a lot now. How are you doing this at NASA? I thought NASA was just observation. No. Well, they need people to develop the science and the theories that will then make this mission successful. That's part of it. And so I would love to see NASA kind of expand those communications. And I think that's an easy task to do. It's very easy, very doable in the next 10 years. Um, and then support, having more and more support for the smaller schools. If they don't have PhDs in physics or astronomy, they can still support because those are where your students, those are where your postdocs are coming from. Um, and so some, there are some HBCU alumni uh, at, at Goddard. Some of them are my friends. <laughs> um, and so I, I would love to see more and more of that culture there in the next 10 years. And so if I have anything to do with that for 10 years, as long as, oof, if NASA doesn't kick me out by then, then that's what I'm gonna continue to do. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I, I'm looking at, you know, I hope to have a long career at NASA um, for, in, in whatever capacity I can for 
for DEI, for research in JETS, for research in theory, uh, I want them to do more general relativity. <laughs> but overall, it's the communication of how things are done, right? Which outside looking in, it's very obscure. How do you, how do you construct a mission? What is mission architecture? Things of that nature. And so that's what I want NASA to kind of, the direction I want them kind of be focused on. Um, and so NASA administration, if you're listening to this, I have some ideas. <laughs> um, but that's 10 years, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the dream. And I know some of that's not gonna be practical. We know we're up against funding, we're up against Congress or whatever, and any other thing that might happen in 10 years for society, right? There's societal influences overall, but that's kind of the dream for, for NASA in 10 years. And I, I hope to be one of the ones leading some of those efforts as well, so. No, I'm sure that'll be the case. You have so many great ideas and we're looking forward to everything that you'll be able to accomplish within the next 10 years. Um, but you touched base a little bit earlier about Black and Astro. Mm -hmm. So what does the future hold for you guys? What are you hoping it's going to look like? And how can people that want to support your cause do so? So we are... And I have to, I have to make sure I'm not revealing too much too soon. Um, but there's a lot of planning being done in the works uh, for um, many events this fall. Uh, so we are, and these are events that are open to anybody, right? So we are, I would love to put on, and I'm, this is an effort that I'm leading. Um, and so I can say this, putting on, uh, workshops for evaluating grad school applications, fellowship applications, double-checking them, the NSF DRFP application. It's, it's an obscure one. It's a very competitive one, but we have a network of people who've done that before. Um, and so I've done it myself personally. I've, out of, I've gotten three students overall. The, the many years that I've been mentoring students, Three of my students have gotten the NSF GRFP. So, and presidential fellowships and other fellowships. I had one student, she's at Georgia Tech. Um, Kosa Johnson, if you're gonna listen to this, you're one of them. So one of my, one of my best and brightest, she got a bajillion dollars for grad school. She's funded for a thousand years now. And that's, that's one of the shining highlights. Like this, you can be one of them. And so that's part of the motivation for workshops like that. And then other professional development workshops as well, right? How do you, how do you communicate your science effectively to someone who's not an expert? How do you do that in an interview where you have literally a finite amount of time, you have 30 minutes maybe in an interview to communicate what you did over five to seven years in grad school? How do you do that? Um, how do you present posters more effectively at conferences? How do you network? How do you reach out to people? You know, how do you get the courage to cold email somebody who's at NASA, who's somewhere else? How do you, you know, how, how do you develop those talents? And so that's some things we're gonna be putting on into the fall. Uh, we have other efforts that are very 
uh, monumental that I can't speak on, but do check out our website, keep up with us. Um, and I would say next summer, we are trying to plan an in-person conference. So that is, yeah, that's, that's the big one that I think I can say. And if I can't say it, then Ashley Walker is gonna be mad at me, but sorry, sorry. <laughs> we need more exposure, <laughs> but that's one of the big ones. And it's, it's a dream of ours to have this in-person conference and we are inching closer and closer to it. I think we are almost there. So do keep up with us um, when we announce the other events that we'll have keep, you know, look out for those. Um, we're constantly updating the website. That's part of my task. Um, and so there were, there's gonna be new website developments. I'm gonna update the design of the website pretty soon. Uh, we, we may have some interactive features on there. So do check that out. Uh, and gosh, I guess that is all that I can say right now. Cause I don't wanna, I don't want to reveal any other surprises we have coming up, but we do have some surprises coming up for Lack and Astro. So there's a lot of things that will be happening uh, this upcoming academic year. Uh, so, and they're going to be there. Most of them will be free. So we'll, you know, they're all, of course, all of these things we are trying to put on for free, no cost to our attendees. We, we want this to be as accessible as possible. Um, so, so that people can learn and gain and grow and have fun with us. Um, I think we might, we might put on another movie night. I don't know. We'll have to ask Keyshawn if he wants to do another movie night. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what's happening in Black and Astro. Um, we've got a bunch of other things coming up the next Five years, our five-year plan is to have a national conference at some point. Yeah, so it's going to be big. And if I revealed something I wasn't supposed to, Ashley email me, not them. Be mad at me. <laughs> Don't email Goku. He didn't do it. I did. So... <laughs> that so yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Dr. Gamble. <laughs> no, that's 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 what we have planned for Black and Astros. So I'm you know, I'm 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 trying to contain my excitement, basically. Yeah, that's those are all extremely, extremely exciting things. And I'm very excited to see um all the amazing things you guys are gonna do this academic year and the future. Um just a quick um follow-up just to sort of for the community how can we support you guys um like black and astro as an organization if we're not directly involved in it like what are steps that we as the community can take as individuals scientists um to show our support and to sort of expand your guys's reach in the community and things of that nature so what do you think that we can do yeah you can um support by you know it, it's Something as simple as just retweeting, the retweets, likes, sharing the some of the materials that we put out there. Um, you know, go into your your uh, meetings with your faculty members at your universities and saying, "Hey, have you heard of Black and Astro? Have you have you heard of Ashley Walker? You probably have, but have you heard of Dr. Gamble? 
and Keyshawn Ivory and Caprice Phillips and Dakota Tyler and Robert Washington and AJ Link and Brene Hadnot and uh, Cheyenne and all these, all of our other team members for Black and Astro. Um, and communicating really the need for the support is probably one of the best things you can do. Communicating that need. Um, and then also, if you, you know, if you hear of other things that we haven't heard of ourselves, feel free to share it. Please share. We're always looking for collaborators. We're always looking for people to support us either, you know, with manpower, volunteers, financially, of course, is a big one. Um, and so that is a major way to help out Black and Astro is to share the word, right? So we're largely word of mouth. Um, and so sharing that is fantastic. You're doing your part if you do that. And, and we congratulate you. We thank you for doing that as well. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody listening to this has any ideas for collaboration or sponsorships or partnerships, let us know. Feel free to reach out. You can reach out to me on Twitter. My email's up on the website. You can email blackandastro.gmail.com. Um, and yeah, we're always welcoming new ideas and, and new partnerships. Um, and so that is, that's one thing. And if, if NASA is listening to this, NASA, I would love for you guys to be a part of Black and Astro. <laughs> um, it's some of those places are very hard to collaborate with, right? Because they're, they're very large institutions. Some have red tape, some don't, but I, I implore people to, to leverage their networks to support Black and Astro. Leverage the network. And, and show up to the events when we put them on, because we're, yeah. Definitely, yeah, so I think that is, that's a very good message to switch community and everyone listening to this, support Black and Astro. They're doing amazing things. Um, so yeah, so we're almost reached the end of our interview. So we like to always end with a couple of quick hitters just for fun. Um, so the first one is, I noticed recently you were tweeting about Attack on Titan. So oh I have watched the show and I've also read the manga. So I know the ending. Uh, so I was wondering, what are your top three favorite Attack on Titan characters? Um, it's, it's kind of contradictory. Um, so I literally just finished season four, part two this morning. And I am like, what? What is happening here? Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> Man, one of my favorite characters, uh, one of my favorite characters was, um, gosh, and her name escapes me, the female Titan was one of my favorites, only because she was pretty badass. And she, in the, in the beginning, when we were introduced to her, she was pretty rogue. So she wasn't like picking a side. She was just, I just want to do my own thing. I don't want to be a part of y'all's fight. But if you're going to include me in here, I'm probably going to win. And she, like, she kicked butt. Like it was the first episode for the female Titan was like, oh, I watched it twice. Cause I'm like, wow, you guys have to step your game up now. 
Um, and I, I am on the fence of, uh, I guess number two might be Aaron Yeager. Uh, he's, he grew on me initially. And then towards the end of part two, spoiler alert, he actually does, well, he flips on us. He lies to Zeke. And I'm like, wait a minute, Zeke's your brother. What are you, Zeke was one of the favorites, right? So, and I like, I liked Zeke too, but I'm like, man, Aaron, you, wow. You really threw us for a loop there. And then if you, if you've seen the end of season four, you know, he completes what he set out originally to do. And it's like, man, he actually did it. What's going to happen next? Oh, wait, Attack on Titans canceled. No. But I did hear they are coming out with a part three next year. So I think we get like 10 more episodes and then they're just calling it quits. So that's my top three right now. If I had extended extend it to maybe like top five, I might include one of the uh, one of the generals in there. He went out like a G in those last few episodes. Um, and so him and another character, they went out like bosses. And so they, they've got my respect for that because that's, they were pretty badass as well. But those are my favorites. Those are my favorites in Attack on Titan. I, yeah, that female Titan episode was crazy. It was, yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> that's, a, that's a solid list. Yeah, that shows, that shows wild. <laughs> crazy show. Um, Yes, and next wanted to ask. Uh, I think it was I. I think you know Isaiah Holt. Um, so he was he's he's one of my good friends, and he was showing me that you went to Dreamville, and we were both very jealous. So uh, I assume that you're a Jake Cole fan. Is that correct? Of course. Yes. Okay. So I would like to know your top three Jake Cole songs. Oh my gosh, this is hard, man. Um. So J. Cole, and I think this was on a mixtape. This was, I think this was on, I think this was on Friday Night Lights, the mixtape. He had a cover of, um, he had a cover of the beat to Souls of Mischief's 93 Until song. It's an old song. So it's old school hip hop. But he did a cover to that song. He used that, he sampled that beat. And he had, it was, I think it's a song called Oh Three Until. That's one of my top five J. Cole tracks. He, it was an iconic beat. He did justice to, and then he killed the song as well. He killed the track as well. So one of the top, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lesser known track, but if you're, if you're, you know, if you're a J. Cole head, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the other one, man, this is a really hard question. Um, the other one might be, it's not, it's not a song, it's not a track. I'm sorry, I'm breaking the rules. It's not a track, <laughs> but that uh, Revenge of the Dreamers, Revenge of the Dreamers 3, 
takes it. Yeah, it takes it. You had Middle Child on there. Earth Gang collabed with him on there. You had a whole bunch of people. That, that kind of takes the cake. Um, and then, man, uh, I, I guess the round out of top three, top three J. Cole songs. I should have went to my, my library before I came on here. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I would say, uh, I would say No Role Models. No Role Models is a great track. Um, only because I kind of the, like, kind of J. Cole's upbringing was a little similar to mine, not exactly the same, but in terms of like, you know, inner city kid, we bounced around. Both my parents are from New York, they're from Queens. Um, grew up in a single parent home, you know, it's, it's the no role models and then continuing that through like, you know, your career as a teenager, as an adult, and it's just like, okay, yeah, I connect with that. Like he's, he's speaking the truth. He's speaking some truth here. So no role models for me, that was the hit. Um, but I mean, I could continue on. There's Land of the Snakes, there's, I mean, there's what? Um, I mean, you have the whole entire Illuminati mixtape. Like you, like I could keep going on. Uh, but yeah, gosh, that's a that's that might be one of the hardest questions today. <laughs> that's a respectable list, though. <laughs> um, the next quick hitter is your top three favorite facts about black holes. <laughs> this one's hard too. <laughs> Okay, so top three favorite facts. Um, let me see here. I, okay, so this is in no particular order. So anybody who might tweet me later about this, this is in no order and don't take this to heart. But, all right, so my top three has to be, um, Top three facts are the, the, the concept of frame dragging, where you can enter into the orbit of a black hole opposite to its rotation and be forced to rotate with the black hole as well. So frame dragging, that's one factoid. Um, and as you are doing that, you are actually aging slower the faster you rotate so it's a it's a relativity thing so that's one of my top three things and we're still trying to figure out why the crap does this happen in the first place right we're still figuring that out um another one would be um um another one would be the the fact that we don't we can't observe, or this is the, the no hair thing, where we're only observing mass, uh, spin, and charge of a black hole, right? And even charge is very obscure. So mostly it's just mass and spin. And then you can calculate area, but that's it. 
right? Mass spin area for a black hole. So it's the no hair theorem. And it's, it's really the obscurity of that fact that if something goes into a black hole, we can't get it out. And if it does come out, theoretically, right? Don't, nobody killed me on this on Twitter for this. If, if we do hypothetically get something out, it's not gonna be the same thing. So that is, that is something that's very interesting to me. And it really captured me when I was in undergrad. I was like, what do you mean something can go, it's a, it's a one way entry. What are, you, what are you talking about? We have to have something to come out. No, if it goes in, it's it, that's gone. It's gone forever. So, you know, if you haven't taken your qualifying exams yet, throw them into a black hole and get rid of them. <laughs> that's one way to just, you know, pass by default. You can't get them back out. You pass by default. The universe passes you. <laughs> the last, last little factoid is, um, huh, <clears throat> is that, uh, we, we can describe um, one of my favorites, and this is really more mathematically heavy, so this hasn't been observed, is the fact that we can describe black holes, especially rotating ones, um, as wormholes. So this is what we call, the actual concept is called an Einstein-Rosen bridge, or wormhole. We can describe black holes mathematically as wormholes. So that's the other half of the mathematical solution to black holes. Well, there has to be another side to spit you out. But of course, there's other implications to that, negative matter, negative energy, travel fast in the speed of light, try not to get crushed, somehow survive, right? If interstellar can do that, so can we. <laughs> but those, I have to say, those are probably top, top three, no specific order. Um, now, if we observe wormholes, then wormholes goes to the top, because that's like, what? This is science fiction in real life. <laughs> um, but yeah, top three, top three black hole facts. Um, fourth one might be the fact that they don't, this is a bonus, black holes are actually very light. So then they, yeah, if you actually calculate the density of a black hole, some black holes you could float in water. They're, they're very light. And so, yeah, but these are the, the small black holes, but even some of the more massive ones, they're still very light in terms of density. So we think of density, things floating. Black hole theoretically could float. That's a bonus fact for you, yeah. A lot of people don't know that, but if you're in the field, you do the calculations. It's like, this is a weird number. Yeah, because it's a lot of empty space. <laughs> Yeah, those are all crazy. Those were pretty mind-blowing facts. Thank you for that. Um, last one really quick before we finish off. What are your three favorite restaurants in the Maryland area? Oh, I know. <laughs> um, well, there's one, uh, man, you guys are really asking hard. This is, these are the hard questions now. Not the, how did you navigate through? No, these are the hard ones. <laughs> Okay, so in the DMV area, we, me and my wife, we usually go, we love going to this one restaurant. Um, it's called uh, La Vie. So it's a, I believe it's a French Mediterranean restaurant. Um, and it's down by the wharf. So if you're in DC, down by the wharf, 
it's an amazing spot to go to. The food's great. They, they, they have this like drink that comes in a little house. They smoke the whole house out and they bring it to you on your table. And when they open the door to this little house, all the smoke comes out. And it's, you're like, you literally have a fumigated drink in there. So I'm sorry, kids, you can't have this. But when you turn in 21, then go to La Vie and order this. Sure. Um, but <laughs> if you are of age, go get this drink. It's amazing. It's like an experience. I, like, I wish I could show it to you. It's an experience. So that's one of the favorite restaurants of ours. Um, another favorite is called the Hamilton. It's downtown DC off of F Street. And it's, it looks like um, the architecture in, that are designed inside the Hamilton. They have very, very tall ceilings in there. And it's filled with like all of this like National Gallery-esque artwork in there. And it, it looks as if you are in a museum or something and you're having dinner right there. And it's a very large restaurant. They have a, a, a performance space in one part of the restaurant downstairs. They have large open areas for dinner. They have like two bars. They, it's, it's amazing. And the menu's awesome. Amazing, the menu's amazing. Um, so people at Hamilton, I'm giving you a, this is a hot take, a good review. So next time I'm there, remember, this is Ron Gamble <laughs> giving you a good review. <laughs> this is your Yelp review. <laughs> um, I guess lastly, lastly, one of my favorites, and this isn't a, it's not a fancy pants restaurant. It's um, um, <clears throat> one of my favorites is, it used to be called Farewell in DC. It's an all vegan restaurant. Um, but it used to be called Pharaoh. It's called Sticky Fingers now, which Sticky Fingers is the bakery as well. So it's a restaurant and a bakery, but it's an all vegan restaurant. My wife's vegan. So I had to learn how to appreciate vegan food and, and things. And it was very interesting, but I really love this restaurant. It's nice. It's quiet. They've got a great menu. Um, you know, you don't, it's all plant-based, so it feels like you're eating healthier. But if you order like a stack of waffles, then all the carbs isn't that, that good for you. <laughs> but it's a fantastic restaurant. And it's a, it's a, I love it because it's a nice place to just relax in the back and just chill. You just wanna go out, grab a bite to eat, grab, you know, something cool to drink or something in the summertime, or in the winter or whatever. They have hot, hot foods as well. It's a nice place to just chill out in the busy DC city. Um, and so that's tied, I have to give you a fourth one. It's tied with busboys and poets. Um, it's a staple. I can't say top restaurants without busboys and poets. I, a lot of people have been there. It's one of my favorites as well. So it's, it's tied on my list with Farewell or Sticky Fingers and it's, I mean, oh, the food's awesome. It's great. The library's there. This book—it's a bookstore, restaurant, performance space. Like, what more can you have? And it's—it's it's awesome. I actually, I actually got this book from there. Oh, see. yeah, has amazing book because uh, <laughs> yeah, trying to learn to cook some Filipino food for Simi. <laughs> 
I, I live across the street from Busboys and Poets, like literally across the street because I live in Hyattsville. Oh, okay. So, right. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, I, I live in Bowie. We, we need to grab coffee at some point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, that's all we had. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Gamble. That was, it was amazing talking to you. I learned a lot. Um, I think yeah, that was awesome. This was really good for the community. Uh, we're really excited to put this out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is Cosmic Crusaders, you guys. Continue to watch their episodes. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Much appreciated, Dr. Gamble. Um, I'll always see you in this academic year for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Please continue to continue to reach out. Um, you can share my contact information if you want. I'm 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 making I always make myself available. If you have questions, students, if you have ideas to bounce off me or questions or concerns or something, or need to get navigate something, you need advice. Send me an email, reach out. Yeah. Um, and support Black and Astro. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Well, thanks, Dr. Gamble. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care. Have a nice rest of your weekend. Thank you so much again. Thanks. You too. Bye.